This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. Today on the podcast, we are joined for a second time by Ryan Morn. Ryan came on the podcast recently to chat economy and efficiency. He has completed an, a PhD in exercise science, focusing specifically on economy, efficiency, and fatigue. And in the last episode, we did dive into those topics in depth. We really, really spoke a lot about economy. So if you want to listen to that episode, it was uh, probably six or seven episodes back. And so in this episode, we want to speak more on the topics of efficiency, fatigue, delaying fatigue, and then getting into the uh, one of the major ways that you can do that, which is strength and conditioning. And so it was another jam-packed episode filled with some great exercise science. And Ryan does a terrific job of really explaining some complex terms into <laughs> methods that we can understand and make sure that they're beneficial and practical for us. So we enjoyed the episode as always, Dad, and it's uh, complex topics, but worth paying attention to. Yeah, I suppose um, my eyes glaze over a little bit when someone starts talking too technically and, and above my um, capacity to understand what they're saying. And, and you know, this is a great episode because he really um, almost dulls it down that I can actually understand uh, what, are the, what are the things that we really trying to do here. And it's, it's great to talk about efficiency and economy, but, but relate it to me so I can understand practically an example of what we can what we can do to improve those components of our of our performance and in our training and so i think it gets really interesting when we start talking about you know when when your body starts to fail in an endurance sport or even in a, a short hard high intensity sport um we want to train so that we're preventing that failure or we're delaying that failure as as long as possible and Sometimes he who outlasts the others is the winner, um, and that's kind of what we're trying to do. We're trying to teach our body to hold form, be efficient, be economical, and and understand what things we can do to help that along the journey. And that's where you know strength and conditioning is a key component um, in enabling us to hold our form on the bike, hold our posture as we run, um, get get a far greater grip on the water as we swim as, as, as examples um, where we don't fatigue because we've done this repetitive action many times and and I think this is one of the the, the, the more practical um, podcasts that we've done that relate the science to more or how do we actually implement this into our program so I think it's fantastic and I'm really wrapped it Ryan was able to come back on and and, uh, and speak in layman's terms um, and because he is an athlete himself and he understands that you know what I'm, what the theory that we don't need to know the theory we just need to know what to do to improve um, our, our basic efficiency and, and our economy which will improve our results without further ado here is the episode Ryan, welcome back to the podcast for a very special part two. Uh, after last time, we went really in-depth into economy and efficiency, and then we ended up spending a lot of time on economy. So today, we're going to look more into the efficiency side of things, plus some uh, more applicable stuff in terms of strength and conditioning for the athletes. But welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah, thank you for having me again. It was a really good experience last time. I enjoyed sharing some, some wisdom and had some um, good feedback. Um, about the podcast, but also had some um, some really um, 
insightful discussion, I thought too. Do you you guys stumped me with that first question? How do you define sports science? I've I'd never been asked that, but it was a it was a brilliant one. <laughs> yeah, we we often actually throw people on the first question because they're expecting something a little bit different. So we don't mean to. It's just <laughs> it just ends up happening that way. Um, but no, it was very it was very in depth, and uh, I know that Dad and I were on the limits of our capacity trying to understand some of the concepts that you were talking about and so we, we welcome that challenge and we want to have a crack at it again and like I said we we really went in depth into economy last time and yeah, I know you can talk about all these topics um, forever basically uh, but we want to go back to efficiency and you did define it last episode um, but for the listeners if you could define it again um, and let us know on almost in layman's terms how, how would you how do you define efficiency and what does it mean for the athlete yeah yeah um, I'll try and define it a bit more basic this time. Um, we'll, we'll start again with economy because it's an easier concept. Economy is just for any given pace or workload, how much oxygen you consume. So, if, you, if you're running at five-minute Ks, how much oxygen? If you're riding at 200 watts, how much oxygen did you consume? Um, and that's mostly, mostly a running concept and it's because you can't measure power very easily. Um, more recently with power meters, we, we can. But in, but in cycling, power has been around for, for many, many years. Um, and so, what efficiency is as, a, as opposed to economy, if efficiency is the, the relationship between how much power you produce or how much work is performed at, at the pedal versus how much uh, metabolic work you perform. So, what is the, the cost of generating that energy? And we do that by measuring watts and then also measuring oxygen consumed um, and looking at the, the breakdown of carbohydrates versus fats at a, at a work, work, rate, work rate. So, what I, what I mean by that, if I'm riding at uh, 150 watts, let's say, then, then, then that we can calculate that as 9 kilojoules a minute. Um, so, 150 watts a minute is 9 kilojoules a minute. If... I then measure my oxygen consumption and, and, I, and I'm at whatever, whatever amount of fat I burn, let's, let's say 0.8. So, so, one is around our anaerobic threshold where we start to burn carbohydrates. So, if I'm predominantly burning, burning fats, let's say 0.8, um, then if I had, uh, if I burned 36 kilojoules, let's say, which would be about right for, for that um, 150 watts, then you could say the you can work out the mismatch there. So so if I'm producing nine kilojoules of work at the pedals, but um, burning thirty six kilojoules in total, then I'm roughly twenty five percent efficient. If that makes sense, and and the reason is because the rest of it's lost as heat and and breathing. So if we're if I'm pedaling and producing that much work. I'm spending roughly four times more energy maintaining um, maintaining my core temperature and and being able to produce that work because there's a physiological cost to it. When I start to ride, heart rate goes up, muscle temperature goes up, breathing rate goes up, and, and all of that requires energy. And so, roughly, twenty five percent efficiency is what we what we see for most people cycling. Um, as for running, we don't really know. There's no 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 real studies that look at efficiency in running. I'm hoping to conduct one soon this year. So, give us an example of the range um, that people expect with an efficiency, and that really helped me understand it because it's not a wide range, is it? Because that cost, that physiological cost, is so big all the time that you're not going to 
jump from 25% to 50%. Oh, yeah. No, no way. So, so like 25% is actually a little bit high. My, most people are 19 yeah. to 22%. And the, the best athletes in the world, 22, 23%. And so, it's such a, such a narrow range. Like to, to go from your, you know, ca- casual super sprint triathlete that does St. Kilda event once a year to Remco Evanapol winning the world champs time trial, two, three percent difference in efficiency. It's tiny. It's it's so small. And part of that part of that comes because of um, pedaling technique is so narrowly constrained because ultimately you're you're attached to the cranks. Um, but also irrespective of how much you improve your physiology, this this still a cost to it. There's still a cost, an energetic cost to breathing, to increasing your temperature, to having an, a higher heart rate. And so, you can only shift those things a, a little bit, a couple of percent. So, improving efficiency, not that worthwhile, I wouldn't think. Um, maybe there's merit to improve ef- effectiveness, which is how well your pedaling technique is or how good your pedaling technique is um, because that might then delay fatigue later on. Um, but the purpose of looking at improving efficiency itself, pr- probably not worthwhile. So, in that regard, why do you think it's worth understanding efficiency in the first place? Well, I think effic- efficiency is worth understanding because it can tell you a little bit. Well, I guess it's because of how you calculate it. So, so in, in calculating efficiency, you have to calculate economy. So, so you, you know a work rate, you know your... Um, oxygen for that work rate, oxygen consumed for that work rate. But you also need to measure power and and in measuring that power, you can also measure effectiveness. So, so um, the quality of pedaling technique. Now, there are many, many ways to do that. Perhaps the most common is, is what's called index of force effectiveness, um, which is just how much um, force you direct tangentially, which is torque, so rotational force um, versus force directed away from the crank or unwanted wanted force. So, we can calculate those those measures of effectiveness really easy. Um, and the other, the other benefit, I mean, even though it's not really worth um, enhancing it so much from a practical perspective, as a scientist, you can still see whether something, whether an intervention has a benefit. Um, and even if it is small, it's likely still worthwhile to the athlete. Um, and that's that's one of the problems with, with science historically. You're looking for this, you know, ar- arbitrary um, change of like a p-value of, of under 0.05. And you might test these athletes, you know, let's say we're testing 100-meter sprinters on the track and we find that one training intervention might improve their time by a tenth of a second. And practically, that means nothing to, to the scientists. You know, if, if you run your significance tests and, and look at your p-values, it doesn't mean anything. There's no significant change. But to the athlete, it's the difference between making the semifinal or making the final or, or running in the medals or running fifth. Um, and so, so there, is, there is benefit to measure it in, in that context, I guess, if, if you're looking for the real small one percenters to improve. And what, what about the relative difference between, you know, you say 19, 22% isn't a wide range when you're looking at it out of 100, but um, c- 
the beginner athlete who, or the casual athlete who's at 19% compared to Remco at 22%, that 3% is a massive difference internally, even if it's not a massive difference, doesn't seem like it, you know, a percentage change of three. Yeah. 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 I take your point. And, and that probably reflects the improved pedaling technique over time. Um, in that if, if there are a few studies to look at the pedaling technique of, of beginners versus um, elite cyclists and, and predictably the elite cyclists are, you know, are much smoother um, in the way they ride. And you can kind of see that. I mean, you, go, you guys would see that more than anyone in the sport of triathlon, I reckon. There are some people, you watch some really pro cyclists that, that, that you might see at a crit as opposed to a, um, a criterium as opposed to a triathlon. And you watch them warm up on the rollers and you're like, that. There is, they're, they're doing something different to what most triathletes do. Sure, they're pedaling a bike, but there's something unique about it. The way they apply the force, the smoothness, the, the way their body keeps perfectly still. And, and that's what might ex- explain those changes in inefficiency, so an improved effectiveness. Um, so, they might have, have better orientation of forces and, and, and a lower metabolic cost or lower oxygen consumption for that um but but it is relatively small change it's an interesting concept if you try to think about it um in real life when i i look on our local ride which happens to be in melbourne on beach road and there would be on any given saturday up to three thousand riders so you've got a huge range of ability and technical um, advancement or, or beginner you've got You've just got such a huge range. And and coming up behind a lot of riders, you can instantly see whether someone is a good rider doing a recovery ride, a beginner rider doing a hard ride. And the, the difference is chalk and cheese. You can, you can see straight away out on the road who is experienced and who isn't just by their technique. And and then you look at someone who has learnt a good technique from a beginner who's only been riding three or four weeks or six weeks or six months and you filmed them when they when they first started and then you filmed them six weeks later when they've been concentrating on pedaling properly and, and getting their cadence up from 72, which is what they started at, to at least something above with an eight in front of it. Um, and, and straight away, they're an improvement in their efficiency or effectiveness as their bike riding their power is higher of course they're training so their power is improving but but just their overall technical ability is enabling them to to absolutely ride better and and so therefore i think it is really relative um, and even though it's it seems a minor percentage, and we do go on about the small small gains, um, they all count. You know, the one one cents all add up to a dollar. So, so if we have fifty gains, you know, we're halfway there. But but really, a lot of the we take for granted that we think everybody can ride properly with good efficiency, and 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 even myself, I have had to work at this for forty years to try and get my efficiency as a peddler better than it was when I first started. And and I think this is something that the listeners don't dismiss this. This is this can be really helpful to you, uh, to your progression as a bike rider. Um, and not only that as a runner as well, but um but you know, we know in swimming that if your effectiveness with your catch, with your pull, you know, you're just going to swim faster without producing any more energy. Um, and I think that's the message you're trying to get across. Would that be a good summary? 
Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And and, and swimming is a really um, pertinent example, I guess, because the the fluid's so dense that that those um, that improvement in in um, stroke efficiency is much more rewarding. But the the concept still applies to cycling, I guess. Using efficiency as the tool to measure that technique improvement, though, is one part. the the other The other reasons for improved technique um, are improved power output and fatigue resistance, and and th- those are perhaps the 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 greater reasons why you might want to improve someone's pedaling technique. and And so, although their efficiency may only change a couple of percent. It's not telling the whole story because efficiency is captured in a in a small window. You're looking at someone pedaling in a lab for ten minutes. You're not really looking at what happens to that person when they've been riding for two hours, when they've been riding in the heat, when they've had to uh, again, let's say they're riding a criterium and they've had to perform twenty five to ten second sprints and three two to three minute efforts to to bridge a gap. Those are times when we want to um, maintain our pedaling mechanics because if we don't, we'll prematurely fatigue or not be able to produce the power that we need um, to to have those decisive moments in cycling. So, you think that it's important to understand, although you do also have to understand that it's not that changeable um, or it's very changeable within a small window. So, knowing both those things, what do you want athletes to take away from understanding efficiency and potentially applying anything from it? Um, that you can't change it all that much, so don't spend too much time on it, but that the components of it are oxygen consumption and pedaling technique and you can change pedaling technique which will help your fatigue management and performance um, and you can change economy practically speaking when someone's moving outdoor not in a laboratory um, because you can manipulate gearing and um, and drag resistance so how aerodynamic some someone is so what what you want to think about is can you improve your pedaling technique and can you improve how or the cost of movement can you get through the air easier and through improved aerodynamics, improved um, gearing selection, improved drafting. Um, well, that's a dirty word in triathlon, isn't it? Drafting. <laughs> um, Not really. It's basically illegal. I mean, it's basically legal at this point. So. Oh, it's allowed. Yeah. Okay. Great. That's good. <laughs> that's a joke because there's uh, just the last few major 70.3s have just been just rife with um, packs of cyclists riding together and nothing <laughs> happening about it. So. <laughs> And I think I think we the next really important thing for the listeners to understand is exactly the point you made, Ryan, when you said it's easy to ride with beautiful technical form in the first twenty minutes of a ride. What are you looking like at the three hour mark when you've you've got a high heart rate, you're very fatigued, you the temperature of your body is through the roof, you know, you. What are the things people can do to enable them to keep that efficiency through fatigue and through all the other uh, cost, energy costs that are going to increase as you pro, 
you know, you, as you process yourself or you, you work your way through the actual effort, whether it's a race or a training session, you are just going to accumulate more fatigue and, and, and energy being burnt for the same amount of effort at a higher rate. So what are the things that's a prob- I think that's probably what we're after is what are the things can people do to help themselves when they start to get to this state of disrepair almost? Yeah, that's, that's where I think the conversation should head. But before I answer that, I'm going to say what, what does happen before while we, while we um, progress into the state of fatigue. And so you mentioned something really important there um, about maintaining workload or maintaining pace and and that's ultimately it if you want to if you want to hold a pack in running or a bunch in cycling you have to maintain that that pace there's a cost associated with maintaining that that pace and if we go a little bit in training physiology here provided that we um, start our effort at a relative intensity that's below the lactate threshold if you stay at that relative tense intensity eventually you're going to pass the lactate threshold whether you want to or not even if you stay at that, that intensity and the reason is because things things get fatigued your muscle fibers get fatigued we have um, preferential recruitment of, of fibers during um, high intensity or any intensity exercise and the body will do what it can to to spare energy and so one strategy we will use is to recruit slow twitch fibers first but eventually those slow twitch fibers get fatigued and so what happens when they get fatigued is you start to recruit more and more type 2 fibers and they're really fatigable fibers the type 2a run on um, oxidative glycolytics so they they burn glycogen through oxidative means um, and type 2B are anaerobic glycolytics. So, they produce um, or they run on glycogen through anaerobic means. They are really short-term, highly fatigable fibers. And so, when they start to chip in to produce some of that work because your slow-twitch fibers are getting fatigued, then it's a race to the bottom. You, you can't really come back from that and, unless you lower the intensity. And what, what happens is is for a given workload, your oxygen consumption goes up, your heart rate will go up, your temperature will go up, then your lactate will start to go up. Your body will attempt to buffer that by releasing all this sodium bicarbonate into the bloodstream and then you'll exhale that as as CO2. So, your CO2 will go up as well. All of those things will drive up acidity within the muscle and ultimately, calcium won't be released from, from the cell or or it won't um, bind to um, tropomyosin in the, in the muscle fiber. And so, at some point, you're going to have a failure of muscle contraction. And that's what we see when people hit the wall. So, think about the Tour de France, people riding at 6 watts per kilo and it looks good until it doesn't. They're riding at 6 watts per kilo and then all of a sudden, they go from 20, 20 k's an hour to 1 k an hour. And, and you see them pedaling squares. And that's because they've got to this point, they're above their critical power, they're dipping into their energy reserves and then they run out of energy. Um, and so, you can't maintain that workload. Now, while all that's happening, you're having to produce produce that force in any way you can and, and your body will change the way you... Um, 
move in order to produce that force. And we see that when people get fatigued, they'll their hips will rock more, their um, ankles will move up and down more, the knees might extend more, they're rocking around around the bike because they're using different muscles that may be trying to enhance um, capitalize on enhanced stretch reflex mechanisms from, from the glute or the, or the ankle to produce that force and that ultimately gets worse and worse. So, what we see when people start cycling, they produce a lot of um, torque during the downstroke and they're reasonably coordinated through the bottom of the of the pedal stroke and then they produce some counterproductive force during the upstroke. Everyone produces counterproductive force. As people get more and more fatigued though, they start producing more and more counterproductive force. And so, if, if I'm producing backwards force, so let's say my right leg's pushing down and my left leg's coming up through the upstroke and instead of helping, it's actually lagging behind and producing backwards force so my right leg's trying to push down, left leg's not helping it, then that means my right leg actually has to push harder. And so, that's what we see, increased muscle activation during the downstroke because the upstroke leg can't maintain the workload and it makes the problems that we mentioned even worse because you're all of a sudden having greater force requirements which makes the the problem about using fatiguing muscle fibers worse and worse Um, and and so eventually you'll fail and so one strategy you can think about is how, how do you improve the fatigue resistance of those muscles or the holy grail is how do you improve average power output Um, because then if you improve average power output at any relative intensity, you're using less power. Yeah, so what can we do to to almost delay that fatigue from happening? What can we do? What other things can we do in our training that will slow that that fatiguing factor down? Um, yeah, that's basically what we're trying to find out. We, we we know that it's going to happen, but but what are the things that we can do that can contribute to making us more resilient? Um, and delay that onset onset of fatigue, I suppose. And the classic example I'm I'm thinking straight away was last weekend's race at Kona. Um, you know, over the years you've just seen people slowly go to a grinding halt in the marathon. Um, not so much in the swim and the bike, but even the best, the most elite, the most well trained, the top of the top of the tree are looking like they are not even fit enough to be out in, in that in that race yet yet they are but they're just not coping with obviously there's temperature increases um you know it's a it's a seven eight nine hour event with endurance so the muscles are just not coping but they're well trained in this in other events but but when they go to kona a whole lot of other things are are contributing to this this problem but i noticed for the first time i reckon in in almost 40 years of being involved in this event, there were a, a whole group now of more than 20 or 30 people who seem like they have worked out how to maintain their pace in the marathon. And for someone to run a 236 marathon um, after after riding a, a 44 kilometer an hour bike ride um, for 180k um, is unbelievably out of this world. Um, and not only in the male race, but in the female race, the same thing happened. Um, to be able to run, you know, a 2.52 marathon, um, which is only a minute off Miranda Carfrey's world record, um, 
was just a, and it was an example of seeing people hold their form. And that was the efficiency thing that I was kind of thinking about. They just looked great from start to finish. They didn't look like they were faltering. I know there's a few rises there. Where I was thinking, oh, you can tell they're going up a hill here because their gait has changed. But, but once they got over the rise, they were back to their really nice form. And this wasn't just the first three runners. This was down in the males. I could see guys coming 23rd, 24th, really still holding form and running close to their PBs. And um, it was kind of a little bit of a change in the guard in the depth of the ability now compared to what it was before. You would only have a few people. I know that's a long-winded example, but I'm just trying to get, get across the question of what do you think they're doing differently than the previous you know, professionals at that level. And, and we can learn a lot from watching professionals because we're not as well trained as them, obviously. We're, we're only age groupers doing our best with the time we have available. So getting bang for our buck is the question I'm asking. What can we do to help ourselves delay that falling apart syndrome? Yeah, there's, there's so much to unpack there. Um, w- one thing not so related to the physiology side, um, I really think there is a bit of a um, – Roger Bannister four-minute mile effect going on in triathlon at the minute. Uh, and I think a large part of that, same with running after the um, sub-two attempt, the sub-six and sub-seven attempts have shown people what is actually possible. Now, I realize they're quite contrived to paces and pace groups and basically a pro-tour team sitting in front of you on the, on the TT leg. But at any rate, it seems to be faster and faster and faster and the times they're running in the marathons, at, like you look at 235, that, that's setting you top 20, top 25 at Melbourne Marathon a couple of weeks back uh, after 180K ride and, and, and a swim. Like it's crazy. Um, and I guess that circles us back to the, to the physiology. Like if we look at Ironman Triathlon in particular, it's, it's probably about the most grueling – no, not uh, – not probably, almost certainly the most grueling single event you can do in one day. Uh, maybe, maybe events like um, you know Ultra Trail Mont Blanc or something might might take it. I'm not sure, but it will go close because of the intensity and, and and the duration required to do that. Cone is unique because it's it's so hot and it's so humid, um, both which cause problems with glycogen sparing and hydration, which brings us back to our physiology. Now, the first thing you can do to delay fatigue is the easiest, which is train properly, which is why why you get a coach. If you're not prepared for the event, like I I, I hope people aren't – I know I realize Cone is a bit different because of the selection policy, but I hope people aren't just turning up to an Ironman having done a park run, you know, and and a local charity ride. I'm sure there are some, but – that's the easy one. Tick that box. Have you trained? Yes. Okay, go. The, the second thing you can do um, are related around pacing. If you get your pacing wrong, then it's going to be disastrous, Not no matter what you do. If, if you're ignoring what your pace should be in the water, you're not looking at your stroke count. If, you, if you're on the bike, you're not looking at your power meter and your cadence and you're on the run and, you, and you're not looking at your pace, <clears throat> you're not superhuman. Something's going to go wrong. If if you go beyond that point I mentioned earlier where you're above that that lactate threshold and you're starting to get into that severe exercise domain, then, then no matter what you do, it's it, it's finite. You, you'll run into trouble. The third part about that though is, of course, nutritional and, and hydration considerations. And 
if you're not taking in enough um, glucose or um, through sports drinks or gels, preferably gels, like ultra endurance events are a bit problematic when people start to take on too much fluid. They often run into the problem of hyponatremia, which is effectively water drowning. Um, so you have too much water um, as occurred to sodium in the blood. So gels are a bit better there. But trying to maintain that somewhere around 60 to 90 grams of, of carbohydrate per hour um, in, in terms of um, gels and drinks. And, and if you're not doing that again, you, you're going to run into trouble. You're going, to, you're going to run out of energy. And even if you do that, do maintain that, you'll probably still run out of energy because your gut will get sick of trying to process those gels. And I'm sure we've all felt that next day horrendous gastrointestinal issues after too many gels. Um, and then related to that, so if you've got pacing, nutrition and training, basic training down pat, that's when you can start to look to interventions around training. And so, if we ask the question, what, what happens if we use cycling example again, um, when you fatigue and those things I mentioned earlier about about unwanted forces or counterproductive forces and different muscles activating, the question really becomes what can you do to improve that? And the answer is you can do a bit of cycling technique stuff. So, there's some evidence about single leg pedaling um, and also um, independent cranks, so uncoupled cranks. I'm not sure if you've seen them but the left and right cranks aren't joined so, that, so you could pedal one forward while the other one went backwards for instance, they're not joined. Um, because they force you to pull up um, through the upstroke. But more than that, the, the, the real um, silver bullet is resistance training. Strength, strength training is remarkable in its capacity to improve force orientation and minimize fatigue. The problem with endurance athletes is um, probably a cultural one and also a time management one. Where do you put it and how do you value it? And, and I think it's more about how, how you value strength training. It's a lot of people wrongly believe that there's too much muscle mass um, and, and that, it, that it won't help their performance as much as it does. That's a great segue. Let's, let's dive right into strength and conditioning. Um, and the first question I'd like to ask is how much do you value it for endurance training, for endurance athletes, sorry? Yeah, a, a lot, uh, but in certain time, um, or, or phasically, I guess you have to do it. At, you have to do it the right way at the right time. And I think a lot of those issues around the cultural um, reluctance to training is is fear of, of gaining excess muscle mass and fear of soreness. Um, excess muscle mass is really not an issue. Um, th there's been a, a number of studies on both running and cycling that have shown strength training um, interventions imp improve all sorts of things. So, improve power at lactate threshold, um, improve um, fractional utilization of VO2, um, improve exercise economy, improve max power, pedaling technique, um, all free of changes in total body mass um, or changes in hypertrophy in specific muscles that don't affect 
um, muscle mass. So, you've actually gained some quad mass and lost overall body mass. So, th- so the, the idea of gaining muscle mass is, is really not, n- not possible. And it's mostly to do with um, to do with nutritional considerations. You, you just can't eat enough. You can't eat enough food and enough protein for the amount of training you do. Plus, there's this this um, molecular um, interference effect. It's called going on as well, where where you're, you've got this endurance pathway, um, which is. Um, called AMPK versus mTOR. And I won't bore you with that too much, but it's this, this um, interaction effect where you've got this, this AMPK which drives um, endurance pathways. Um, so, it's, it's, its role is in cellular energy regulation and then this mTOR pathway which um, promotes all things growth, um, insulin, um, insulin-like growth factors in the body. At that, mTOR is activated after strength training and really heavy strength training um, and after protein ingestion. Um, but the problem is AMPK basically counters all, all of those effects of that in- increased mTOR activation. Um, and that's what we get from endurance training. So, so not only are you not having enough nutrition, you're also getting this molecular signaling, signaling to not, not gain muscle mass. And so, it's really, really hard to do that. And the, and the only people that, that might gain a lot of muscle mass um, um, during that in tra- training, either they're, they're new um, or they've been eating absolutely rubbish and, and, and they haven't, haven't um, had enough energy, so relative energy deficiency syndrome, they're just not eating enough um, or, or they're cheating, they're enhanced, they're on some sort of, sort of drug to, to improve their performance. Um, and so, it's really, really, really unlikely that that would happen. Um, so, gaining muscle mass is not really a thing. So, then the fear of soreness comes in and I know that is a big thing uh, for mm. a lot of athletes and um, definitely personally, you don't want your key training sessions to be affected and I do want to touch on that and touch on scheduling but before that, can we just talk about some general principles of strength and conditioning for endurance athletes? Yeah. So, so soreness is brought about by unaccustomed activity, um, high intensity activity, um, and eccentric activity. This is in the gym. So, unaccustomed activity. If you do something new, you're going to get sore from it. Even if you've been doing strength for a long time um, and add some some really, really novel stimulus, you're going to get sore of it. So, so build up slowly and become accustomed to it and don't, um, don't completely take a 90-degree turn in your training and, and, and chuck something else in. Um, and, and it's remarkable that people don't consider that because you, you would consider that with any other mode of training. If your sport was triathlon and you're doing swimming, cycling and running um, and then you suddenly decided to go play a game of tennis, everyone would, would assume that they were going to get sore back, sore chest, sore arms from that. But people seem to, to not think that when they're in the gym that if they just keep chucking different exercises every session that they're not going to get sore because it falls under this you know this banner of gym which is just not true you, so so don't 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 go chucking in crazy exercises as long as they're consistent then it's not unaccustomed so second thing is the intensity if if the intensity is too much and and you're doing um too much volume at intensity, that's a real killer. Intensity per se is, is fine. So, heavier is better for cycling economy and 
um, efficiency and explosive um, plyometric base is better for running economy. Um, but if you do too much at, at intensity, you're, you're just going to, to, to run into too much muscle damage um, and, and that, will, that will cause a lot of soreness. Um, and related to that muscle damage is eccentric activity. So, so where the muscle fibers lengthen under tension, so where you contract them to shorten them, if you think about those actin and myosin filaments overlapping each other, when you then pull them apart reluctantly, things break off. Um, and that's what we call micro tears in the muscle and that causes a lot of, a lot of pain and swelling. Um, so, minimizing too much of, of any of those things is, is, is fine. And there, there was a paper out a couple of years ago by, by a guy, um, Brock Freeman, showing that if you in, introduce um, eccentric Nordic hamstring exercises, which are about one of the most painful DOMS causing exercises you can, that in as little as, as three sessions of doing them, the DOMS had disappeared for participants. Um, so, we're talking three to four sessions of, of soreness, which if, if you start that in your off-season, it's, it's nothing. It's nothing. The benefit of it is just so worth it. Um, we've got so many examples of people who have just been training for years without concentrating on developing a little bit more strength in their muscles and introducing a strength component and all of a sudden you know they're riding better and it could be a lot of other reasons because they've concentrated on their nutrition they've concentrated on their program a lot better that but but the underlying thing is that is one subtle change that can give you a a benefit that's that's really i just don't know how you could argue against it because there's there's li- very little evidence to say that if you don't do it well, um, you aren't going to get a, a an improvement somewhere. So, so how do you how do you then time the actual session in relation to your number one sport, which is could be triathlon, could be cycling, could be running, and and it's a question that that I think doesn't really have one answer. It could be a multiple of, re- of things. And can you go through a little bit about where you think the timing should be? In for example, let's just take a cyclist for a, to make it really straightforward. Where there's one sport, um, and they've got a program that's got two hard sessions in it, an endurance session in it, some recovery, and say maybe some zone two, just to give everybody an idea. And most people have this in their program. Where would you see? someone who's an endurance athlete who's looking towards being improving their VO2, improving their FTP and maybe, you know, doing the Melbourne to Warner ball or something that's got an endurance component, where would the strength component be in their program? Yeah. Okay. We'll start more, more globally. So, if you are looking at a competition at the end of the year, then your more intense strength training should, should be happening earlier in the year. And so, I, I don't think you could maintain the focus or three to four days of strength training a week as you move throughout the season toward competition. So, you'd move just as you would periodize any sort of training. As you move toward it um, to competition, you might reduce total base case. So, you reduce the amount of, of total volume you're riding because you're doing more intensity. The same is true for, for resistance training. So, Starting in the off season is really good, but then main, maintaining that. There's only only a couple of papers that that have done that. There's one one really important paper by this um, guy called Bent Ronestad, um, and they looked at 
um, him and his co- colleagues looked at training in, in elite cyclists. I think that was 25 weeks and they did, they did 10 weeks of, of um, three sessions per week and then um, 15 weeks of, of one session per week. Um, and, and they showed improvements in, in strength in the gym, improvements in peak power on the bike, average power on the bike, average power at lactate threshold, um, imp- improved um, torque during the downstroke. So, both increased torque and, and a longer application of torque. And then um, in a follow-up study, less counterproductive force in the upstroke. So, so basically everything improved. Um, and, that, and that was off one session a week in season, they were able to maintain those qualities. So the first thing is, is the bulk of that training should be, should be in the off-season or, or, or in the less important phase of the season. I know for, for sport like cycling, it's not, not really – there really isn't an off-season, but, but you can certainly go, you know, categorize it into to A, B and C races. And where there's C and B races, you, you might prioritize off the bike training. Um, in terms of um, scheduling within a week, again, it depends what you're doing. If, if you're in a base training phase in the off-season, it doesn't really matter if you come into that base phase a little bit tired and, and with heavy legs because you're riding at 150 watts anyway and, and, and the, the importance of that is low. You're, you're still going to get those endurance adaptations. If we're at the other end of the competition phase though, you want to prioritize the sport-specific training before strength training because it's, it's more relevant. Um, and, w- and we all know that strength training can enhance your ability to go well at that sport, but just doing strength training itself doesn't make you good at that sport. Because if that was true, everyone that went to the gym five days a week would be a good cyclist and runner. And that's, that's of course, you know, not, not true to think. And so, what makes you good at those sports is, is, is doing those sports. And so, you need to prioritize that. Um, so, strength training will be, will be less of a focus and you might move back to more of kind of a maintenance style training session where you did a little less, less volume and, and less frequency. In terms of day-to-day scheduling though, what, what you want to think about is that interference effect with, that I talked about. And so, those two molecular signaling pathways, the AMPK, which is called adenosine monophosphate activated protein kinase. So, that's, that's one pathway that drives all our kind of cellular energy um, or, or cellular, cellular metabolism adaptations. Now, it lasts, its, it's signaling is, is upregulated for about three hours. mTOR which, which stands for mammalian target of rapamycin, which is our growth factor, that's elevated for about 18 hours. And now, that's, that's really important to know that because what it means is um, we have a window of op- opportunity there of which we can do one and the other without in- interfering too much with the other. And so, depending on the relevant um, the, the part of the season you're in, you want to have those sessions as, as far apart as possible. And if endurance training is, is first, you want to allow at least three hours before you then strength train. So, you might do it your high intensity interval session before work and then, then your, um, your strength training session after work. But because of strength training's effect and that, and that elevated mTOR pathway, it really doesn't matter because that's elevated for 18 hours um, on, on average. And, and so, 
as long as you could um, not be too fatigued that your your training um, on the bike would suffer, then you've got to you know it doesn't really matter too much how close closely you do it within within reason. I mean, most studies studies show somewhere between six to eight hours is is optimal, and so for the average average working person, that's we're talking about at the end start and the end of the day. So so you do your you know, strength training is the focus in off-season, strength training in the morning, aerobic training at night. If you're in the competitive phase, then you're doing your, your high-intensity training in, in the morning and then, then your strength training at, at night. Um, and, and as long as you're allowing for nutritional considerations, as in you're getting enough protein. So, endurance athletes need about 1.6 kilos or 1.6 grams per kilo of body weight of protein each day. And enough carbs and enough sleep and, and the rest of it, you, you're treating yourself like an like an athlete. Then you should be able to get the best of both worlds. Is that true across multiple sports? So running and cycling the same in terms of the scheduling, morning and night. Yeah, sch- scheduling is much the same. the The problem, of course, for multiple sports becomes you have to fit it somewhere. So, so cycling, cycling is a real time intensive sport. As you know, like a, if we look at running, the best runners in the world, even the, even the top guys, like sub 210 marathoners, they're running 12 hours a week. The equivalent cyclists are 30, 35 hours a week. So, cycling is a really time intensive sport. Um, but, but also, so is triathlon because, it, because you, you, you're training for three sports. You're becoming good at three sports. And so, you have to fit it somewhere. And so, again, it's about scheduling the relative importance of, of strength training when in the year you should do it, but also keeping the sessions short. So, there's there's no need to do eight exercises. Um, it might be as simple as, as a leg press for, for leg extension strength, um, you know, some sort of, of deadlift or hip thrust for, for hamstring and, and lower back strength and that's it. You know, for, for lower body, if you want to include a bit of um, upper body stuff, maybe you have some ro- rotational work, and then f- then for swimming, you have some sort of of, of weighted chin up or chin or pull down exercise, and there your four exercises, and, and it and it doesn't really need to be special. I think I think more broadly, not not related to to triathlon, I think social media has a, has a fair bit to answer for in that. The, the most viewed um, and successful content is is that content which is a little bit ex- extremist and so it's not it's not no one wants to tell the story of consistent simple gym training for week in week out year on year because it doesn't look as good as some crazy exercise with jumping and bands and chains and Instagram filters you know um, but it, the reality is, it works perfectly fine. In fact, you'll get better results from training training simply than than you will from 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 doing these complicated, crazy things. I'd like to continue on that theme and go. You've highlighted some really key areas of focus um, and what not to do. What are other some other key mistakes that you might see endurance athletes make when it comes to strength training? Not replacing a portion of their training with strength training, um, and what I mean by that is thinking that you can still do all of your training and then chuck strength training on top of it. That's probably the biggest mistake I see most endurance athletes make because there's that that belief, I guess, that the more training you do, 
the better. This this linear belief that if I can do more Ks and more swimming and more running, then I'll be better. And, and it's not true. You know, it's true to a point. Um, and the best best endurance athletes do train a lot. But there's a lot of variance in that. You know, some 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 people are, are able. Oh, look look at um. There's a couple of studies that have come out in the last um last couple of years characterizing training in cycling and, and on average cyclists train about 30 hours a week to to be world tour cyclists but there's variance in there so, some athletes are, are pros off 18 hours a week and others are 40 um and so so finding that sweet spot for you is really important but in general just chucking more training at yourself is not it's not going to have a better effect it's going to have the opposite effect your your tissues and your structures will get damaged and they need time to adapt that's that's the classic um general adaptation syndrome if we cause a cause a stress or an alarm response then we need a time for our body to recover to that response to get to baseline and if we allow it to recover a bit beyond that then we super compensate we get better adaptations from that training um so so more you know, less is more, I guess. Um, replace a portion of, of some of your training with strength training. That would be the, the biggest mistake. Um, the second biggest mistake is kind of the green-eyed monster of jealousy. This is going to sound harsh and blunt, but you're an endurance athlete. Guess what? You're weak, okay? When you go into the gym, there will be 55-kilo <laughs> females lifting more than 80-kilo male triathletes, all right? <laughs> Chasing gains because other people in that gym are strong is really, really, really stupid because they they wouldn't come across to your sport and think they could run 345Ks and, and hold 42 on a bike leg. And, and so, comparing is is a really unhelpful thing. So, so pick basic exercises, start slow and, and re- replace a portion of, you know, the, I don't like the term, but but junk miles like those that that those long slow distance miles that up to a point aren't going to make you any better uh, particularly if you've got an athlete with a long training history um and, and we're not talking a lot we're talking cutting out three four hours a, a week of aerobic training to put in strength training um it, it, it you know more than makes up for for what you take from those endurance um hours but you're you're even saying, you know, make it simple. You you gave the example of four basic exercises that you could do, and they're actually not even going to take you more than, you know, twenty minutes each session. Um, if you warm up well and cool down well, it could it could be as low as you know an hour and a half, and you've 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 got your you've got your outcome that you're after. So it's not a big time consuming thing. But but for people who are wondering whether it's valuable or not. It is a game changer. It, it will it will improve you, um, and people are searching for one percenters all the time. And as you said, just be consistent. Just be consistent with your training. Add this into it, and and watch the results flow. It's, mm. it, it's well, and the, it's and, that important. And it's not it's not one percenters. They're, they're they're big things. Like look looking at um again the the same authors Ronestad Hansen and, and Rastard I'm sure I pronounced that wrong um, did did this did another um, 12 week training study twice a week um, they rode but then they then their um, test was quite novel they had people ride for 185 minutes 
um, and then do a five-minute all-out time trial at the end of it. Um, and their time trial at the end of it, their average power increased 30 watts during this five-minute effort at the end of um, this submaximal ride. And that submaximal ride was, was at 60% um, VO2 max. So, they're riding pretty steady and then able to hold 30 watts more at the end of that off only 12 weeks of, of training twice a week and that was four exercises they did in that study. Um, that's profound. To give yourself 30 watts at the end of a race of eight sessions, um, you know, the, the, the rewards are really great. As for exercises for, yeah, the, t- depending on your sport, it does differ a little bit. So, so for cycling, strength is, is more beneficial. So, not so much power. Um, the, the results are pretty clear that the studies that have failed to show improvements used really rapid training, so explosive training. And then the studies with the largest beneficial effects um, were those that employed strength. So, so getting three to four to five repetitions. Um, and that takes a little bit of time to overcome that soreness. Again, it probably only three to five sessions, um, but then, then heavier is better for cycling. <clears throat> The other, the other spectrum is running. It's basically the inverse of that um, and that's due to the, the um, contrast in those sports. Cycling is about pushing the biggest gear you can in, in a desired cadence range. So, if, if everyone's alter, operating between 80 to 90 revs, which is roughly where you should be, um, the person who produces more torque at that power will go better, you know, all, all other things being being equal or, or even if, if they're not equal, if you look at the individual themselves, if you can produce more torque or more power, you, you're going to go faster. Um, <clears throat> but for running, it's the opposite of that because because we have short contact times and, and that stretch reflex. So, you want to think bouncy exercises um, and that's where you include plyometric exercises. But through through scheduling of sessions, it's pretty easy to do. You just start start with plyometric exercises. So, so, start with a couple of bounding exercises, um, short contact time, drop jumps, simple things like pogos, um, skipping. Skipping's great. There, there's a study that shows um, five minutes of skipping every day improves running economy and 5K time trial performance. Um, it's, it's not real hard. So, warm up with five minutes of skipping, uh, you know, take, take your shoes off so you're just doing it in socks so you're getting more tendon benefits. Um, and um, planter benefits and, and you're going to be improving that. For really, really skilled athletes that have a strong strength training history, you might think about contrast training which is where you have a heavy strength exercise followed by a couple of minutes rest and then a, a plyometric exercise. That could work for an experienced athlete um, training for, for cycling and, um, and running, so triathlete. Um, because they work quite well together. But in general, I would start with the, the, the kind of bounding, poppy, explosive stuff first. And how, how high rep are they? Because you say that strength is obviously lower rep, heavier load, plyometric stuff. How high rep are you talking when you say more explosive? The, the studies are pretty, pretty clear around two to 300 repetitions per week. So, so what does that mean? If you've got um, three jumps and it's... A, it's um, you know, if it's 300, it's 100 repetitions 
per week, 100 jumps. And so if that's 100 skips or it might be 20 skips and, you know, 20 contact jumps and um, three sets of 10 pogo jumps or whatever it is. So, so 200 to 300 jumps per week is, is tends to be the advice um, around that. And light that, loading. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You can't be doing, um, <laughs> you know, box jumps with a massive weight on your on your back. Or I mean, you wouldn't be so safe anyway. But yeah, yeah. Point. I mean, I mean, yeah. That's the opposite end. Like sprint cyclists, BMX athletes. Sure, go go ham. You can do that all you like, but not for, you know, not for in, in, endurance athletes. Um, where short contact time is is um, warranted. So to finish off, give us your top five to six go-to exercises you'd give for cyclists. Um, just generally, I know everyone's a little bit different. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm actually about to um, finish a, a paper for the um, National Strength and Conditioning Association journal, um, which which will have some um, exercises in it based around choosing um, exercises for cycling based on the on the pedal quadrants so so where you produce force around the quadrants but i think if i had to had to choose them um i would say leg press is is great because you can lower it easily it's relatively similar to the cycling motion um and and it's it's safe you know it's simple safe you can load it you don't want exercises that are too similar um, or too different either to, to the motion you're trying to perform because it might interfere with with your coordination. Um, the jury's a little bit out on that though. Um, but leg press is great. Sled push, awesome for, for cycling because it's about orienting the force down and around the bottom part of the crank. Hip thrust, um, similar about... Um, directing that force down and around the crank um, and then some sort of pulling up exercise. Um, so, like a, a mountain climber or um, like a, a row where you might be standing up and, and tie a TheraBand around your foot and then you're kind of pulling your knee, um, you're pulling it, causing knee flexion and, and hip flexion. So, you're moving your kind of knee towards your chest um, <clears throat> to work on that upstroke. Um, and then you could you could probably argue about some sort of hamstring exercise in there as well, which which could be a hamstring curl, a hamstring slider, um, like that. That that's that's around the pedal stroke. The other really important thing for cycling though is is I would include at least one bracing exercise. So that that could be something as as simple as a push up or or a plank or something like that. Particularly for triathlon because you you have to be in that position a lot. So so you want to be strong in that position. Um, for sure. Yeah. For running, um, I would – I mean, all of those those exercises are quite good at producing strength for running as well because even though running um, is different range of motion, it's still cyclical in nature um, as, as in you have to produce – hit, so drive the leg down in front to, to produce force, contact the ground drive it behind you and then lift the leg back up into recovery. So, it's kind of like an exaggerated cycling motion, I guess you could you could think about it as. So, those exercises are all right. Um, but really, skipping is great um, and, and um, so, skipping up and down on the spot um, but, also, but also that kind of skipping that you, you know, that you did at school like skipping 
back and uh, it was skipping forward, just taking steps mm-hmm. on the go. Um, mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. Bounding, stuff like, you know, uh, you see sprinters do those kind of exercises where they're, they're yeah, really exaggerated. Ba- bounding is really good. Um, and I found it very useful with sprint athletes, but it falls into that category of um, you need to have a relatively good level of, of strength first because it's 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 a really um, DOMS inducing exercise because you've got these extreme ranges of motion and because you're bouncing quite high, you're getting these quite large impact forces as well. Um, but for someone that's been doing plyos for a while, it's great exercise to do. I don't know if you've seen, Ryan, there's some fantastic YouTube videos of uh, Kenyans, five, six, seven, ten Kenyans all in sync doing these pre, pre-warm-up pre drills with legs going forwards, backwards, up in the air, behind, you know, and they just do it to a beautiful rhythm and it's part of their actual warm-up routine before they do a lot of their running. And and a lot of that stuff's really just short contact time with their feet on the ground. Um, and it looks super impressive when they're all doing it together. Um, but, but you know, they're the sort of things I still remember. Jordan will remember when he was a, an 8, 9, 10-year-old I would get him to do those things before any any of our training sessions. We would be doing a lot of that plyometric stuff where you're just jogging along and you, you're kicking your heels up so your, your back of your heel hits your, your backside and, and then you're lifting your knees up high and, and then you're rotating uh, left, you know, hip, hip side to side. Um, there's just so many little things that you can think about that, that are really going to help you with coordination as well as, um, as just giving yourself some sort of bounding because um, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to replicate uh, the actual action to a, to a certain extent and warm our, our muscles up, but also give us some mm. recruitment uh, at the same yeah. time. Yeah, uh, running is perfect for it. Like cycling's a bit harder because you have to get into the gym for those exercises. But but if you're a runner, the buy-in's so low. If we're we're talking three to five minutes of, of skipping, like a, with a skipping rope style skipping, then some some A B skips, some basic technique drills. And three to five strides, there's 10 minutes warm up and, and, and you've got, you know, there's a lot of evidence that will say by doing that before every run, you're going to improve your economy and improve your time trial time. For, for if you're running six days a week, that's an hour extra of training. Um, it's part of a warm up, like it's really small buy-in. I'm, I'm surprised that more people do it. I think, I think it's again, probably, they probably devalue it like it's... it's you know, I know I do with my training a bit. I, I, I certainly do some um, technique drills, particularly before um, slower runs, recovery runs. But uh, everyone wants to be doing the hard efforts, don't they? Like it's 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 great to do K reps and, and smash yourself because the perceived value of it's more, uh, but it but it's probably not more. That uh, that number of what did you say, two hundred to three hundred. Reps jumps per week, mm. jumps per week, just makes it so attainable and so achievable. And when you think of that, you think, well, yeah, it's not that much spread out over. You wouldn't even have to do it every session if you just did it for three or four of your sessions, then you'd be able to hit it. So yeah, for sure, it's it's, it's not that hard. Yeah, mm. um, yeah. And, and the- is there a sense that you can overdo it if you? Obviously, you can overdo anything, but if you if you built it up to where you were doing five hundred jumps a week or six hundred, is that no more beneficial than two hundred to three hundred? Um, y- yes, you're correct. So, so the studies that I've seen on that, there is a, um, like an, uh, 
inverted U-shaped response where nothing you're getting, no jumps you're getting, no performance, and then and then some jumps you're getting this this optimal level, and then then beyond that you're getting this decrease in performance, um, and that's because you're fatiguing those muscle fibers, but you're also likely causing tissue damage um, because your tendons and, and connective tissue have to absorb that that force or that load from the jumping. That's a brilliant way to finish, Ryan. Thank you so much for uh, doing your best to take all of the, that brilliant knowledge inside your head and applying it to uh, <laughs> our layman uh, athlete brains. I'm sure the listeners appreciate the, your patience in explaining everything. Uh, to finish off, where can people find you? Where do you want them to look you up? You're obviously doing a lot of work. You do a lot of work down in Ballarat at a Fed Uni, plus producing, like you said, some journal articles yourself on the science. So, yeah, where can people look out for you? Sure. So, on social media, um, uh, you can find what I do um, at Federation University. So, if you look up at, at Fed Uni Sport on Instagram, at Fed Uni Sport, or just type in Federation University for Sport on um, Facebook. You'll, you'll find us there um, and we're doing a lot of athlete testing stuff. So, so our, our aim in the, in the next little while is to um, delve much more into testing and research. So, doing a lot on, on cycling efficiency, running economy, um, improvements. In, we've got a study at the moment looking at hip motion um, and running economy. We're about to start a, a study on iso-inertial versus isometric training on cycling performance. Um, so, we're really looking to, to branch into that area. So, hopefully, there'll be a bit of kind of content coming out about about that. Um, yeah, I guess otherwise, keep a, keep an eye out for for some articles that I'll be hopefully publishing in the next little, little while about these topics. And did you patent your idea of uh, your own individual economy test that you've done where you take 10 shoes and you... <laughs> and, yeah, there's, and um, <laughs> there's a... A page on Instagram. What's he called? Um, Lab Rat Rundown. I think he is. I think it is. Um, and uh, he's got the market covered for that, mate. He's. He okay, does, that's yeah. all he does is buy shoes and test economy. I don't know where he gets <laughs> yeah. his money from, but he. Yeah, he's yeah. blowing thousand dollars a week on shoes. So Matt, thank you so much again for joining us. We really appreciate you having on, and uh, I know the listeners really enjoy the explanations. So thanks again. Cheers. Thank you yep, very thanks, much Ryan. for having me. Fantastic, mate. That's it for this episode. Thanks as always for listening and we'll see you next time.